0: Wolfing Down Food Science. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Wolfing Down Food Science. Today, we have Dr. Stephen Fleming, who is the CEO and co founder of Traverse Science. His company provides insights that allow food companies to innovate in the nutrition space. He started out at community college and then earned a bachelor's degree in psychology and a doctorate in neuroscience from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign.
1: Stephen, welcome. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So Stephen, um, failure is not really a word that we like to hear with our own career journeys, but we, we say this oftentimes to students and we felt it in our own that it often provides, you know, a, a good lesson in the context of your career. Can you describe your career journey and what led you to go your own way and become a consultant and how multiple failures sort of played a part in that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, failure is such an interesting buzzword in some ways with uh, like entrepreneurship. So. When I was starting this company, I was in the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign's like startup incubator, Enterprise Works there, and you know, just listening to podcasts and other things, and you know, you hear terms like "fail fast," which um, I get in principle in the sense that you don't want to do one thing too long if it's not working. You know, figure out when it's not working and move on. But "fail mm-hmm. fast" also has just its own weird connotations um, that I I don't always really like like them either. Um, you know. And, I might work backwards in your question, from more recent things to then where I started. But um, you know, in I think I think one example, it was just we're in 2024 now. In 2022, um, that was a couple of years into the business, which I started with my PhD advisor in 2018 as I was finishing my PhD. But it took a little while to get started, and in 2022, things were really ramping up. And I thought, okay, this whole thing of fail fast. I should do like a lot of things, figure out what works and what doesn't work. And I, I just bit off way more than I could chew. And looking back, you know, I had a lot of good lessons from that in the sense that I started growing a team. And at that point in time, I didn't even know who I really needed on that team, like not even about what person, but what position needed to be in the team, like as an organization, who would be best to fill that. Um, I was getting projects and then I started growing the team and then I was like, wait, at this size of team, I need to do XYZ even more sales to be able to fund that. So those were like big failures that had ripple effects for a while in the business. Um, and honestly, it's like, I would have just preferred to have known to do it the right way the first in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember listening to another podcast on other consultants growing the business. And they were like, here's some of the top three mistakes that new entrepreneurs make. And I'm like, wow, I just made all of those. And I (laughs) I would have loved to have not done that. I probably had heard those before, but I didn't like understand the context of it. Um, Mm -hmm. But maybe to back up way more. So I, I think some might call it a failure, but at pretty much every step in my educational path, I have not known what to do next. I I didn't pay that much attention in high school, but I had smart friends. So I was like smart by association and they would talk about colleges and I'm like, I don't really care about that. And then one day they were just all gone and I was like, maybe I should have (laughs) paid more attention to that. Um, And so, you know, I went to community college, which I I super recommend to any high schoolers uh, to -hmm. do that. I, I went for a year and a half. I was able to pay for it by working retail at a local shoe store And, and in summers I would mow lawns. And in fact, my first, um, exposure into business was, I mean, I wanted to, to grow a lawn mowing empire, um, (laughs) which I obviously haven't done. And I'm really glad I didn't do, but I would go door to door asking people if I could mow their lawns, you know, I'm like, Hey, I'm the neighborhood kid. I'm trying to pay for college. Can I mow your lawn? And that was, if you're comfortable with a lot of rejection, like knocking on 50 doors and only one of them even like opening the door or wanting to talk to you. You know, that works. Um but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And um right now I'm married to my high school sweetheart. So she went to U of I. I didn't. Um, and uh I I wasn't sure what I was interested in. I, I thought, you know, maybe obviously if I get a job I want to make money. So maybe if I do accounting and I handle other people's money, it'll like find its way into my own pocket as well. Hopefully not in like some sort of embezzlement scheme. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, so I took a course on microeconomics and they're talking about consumer behavior. And I thought that's kind of interesting. Like why do people do certain things or buy certain things? And that led me down to this psychology route. Um, and so a year and a half into community college, um, I, I transferred to UVI of I, Urbana-Champaign. I didn't really care much where I went. I was like, my girlfriend's there. I'll just go there. And it was a good school for that as well. And um, I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I joined a few labs. I joined one about uh, childhood bullying, which was really interesting. It was, I mean, I was doing data entry. It, it itself was boring. I would read surveys, put them in Excel while watching Netflix or something. Um, I joined another one that was about Cognitive psychology and like memory, which sounded interesting, turned out to be very, very, boring. And then I joined another one on like biological psychology and they were looking at this, uh, g- this uh, syndrome frag- called Fragile X syndrome. And it's the only or not the only it's one of the few single gene mutations that causes intellectual disability. So from mm-hmm. a scientific standpoint, it's easy to study because, you, you know, what causes it. And that was super interesting. But fast forward through undergraduate, I then I was like, okay, I didn't take undergraduate seriously in terms of where to go and how to apply. I should do this for graduate school. I, I, I did pursue graduate school for the wrong reason, which is I just didn't know what else to do at the end of undergraduate. I thought I've done this undergrad research thing. It's really cool. I'll just like keep doing this, which I don't. It's worked out for me, but I don't think that's really a great reason to do grad school. I mean, you could do a lot of things, not just continue on because that's what you were doing. And that's also like something that I have struggled with is every time I'm at this inflection point in my life, I'm like, maybe I'll just continue what I'm doing and see where the next level of that takes me. And so I applied to eight graduate schools. I've already forgotten where I applied out of the trauma of getting rejected from all of them, which isn't true. I interviewed at Michigan State University, and actually, that was the only one. And and I had some mentors, some graduate students who were good friends and mentors of mine. And they're like, you know, just I know you don't want to stay in Champaign Urbana, but uh, just interview here. And because you've been working here, we're just gonna like let you go to the interviews, even though you never applied. Um, and so I was, I had interviewed at the Chicago campus as well. Michigan State had rejected me, and then I, it turns out I was accepted accepted to the Chicago one, but that was after I'd already accepted something at Urbana. And anyways, I thought, well, I because I had done all that work in fragile X syndrome in undergraduate, that's the thing I told everyone I wanted to do. And lo and behold, it was so niche and small, not many people were interested in it or the professors mm-hmm. who were didn't have funding at least in that year. And so I thought I need to like broaden my horizon, and just you know, anyone whose face seems slightly appealing to work with on the <laughs> <laughs> list of professors or whose content or, and work sounds interesting, I'll interview. And I again, I interviewed like three or four and all of them were like, you're really nice, you're smart, but I don't have funding this year or like what you're interested in, I just don't do. So it wasn't a match. So it's like, I was feeling really like down, uh, like I've failed at even getting into grad school. This is crazy. And then I, I broadened my horizons again, and I, I met who eventually became my PhD advisor and then business partner, um, Dr. Brian Dilger, and he was, he was not tenured at that point, and he was running a lab with he was, uh, he was running a research farm, and he would feed you know baby pigs different types of infant formula, and look at um, their brain development. And you know, he was like, "Hey, I'm a I'm an animal scientist, not a psychologist, and I need someone who can help with the brain stuff." And I thought, "Oh, that's perfect. I have this bachelor's in psychology. I don't have the background in the nutrition, so like, I could teach him this the psychology aspects. He could teach me the nutrition science stuff." And I didn't realize it at the time, but he was really good at uh, fundraising and had a lot of industry connections. So that chance. Um, I guess it's not chance, but yeah, it just kind of feel like chance There's an element of luck that, that meeting went so well with him. Um, it went so well that I, I kept like emailing or talking to him and he's like, did I miss something? Did I hire you yet? And I was like, no, but I just thought it went so well that you're going to, <laughs> and I knew that you were looking for it. Well, I think that's a really
0: good segue to, to talk about that, that area of research. I, what I was fascinated by just in, in trying to understand your background was looking at how you came from psychology and neuroscience, and then got into nutrition science, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just try to help us understand how the, this um, these experiments on dietary fiber um, on uh, on on pigs, how does that work in terms of its application to nutrition science? And I think you 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 started to talk about the the connection to neuroscience. So if you could kind of mm-hmm. expand on that, if you will, please.
1: Yeah, absolutely. From the outside, it's like, what possible connection is there? Right. And then when you're in the inside doing it, you're like, how are other people, how do you, how is it not immediately obvious? So, <laughs> um, you know, most research is on mice, right? Um, Or like cells, you know, th- we call these things preclinical research, clinical being human research, you know, preclinical, anything before that, before that would be like, it could be like pigs, dogs, cats, humans, monkeys, whatever, cells. And, In my undergraduate, I was working in labs on rodents, and um, I thought pigs, well, that's weird. And I mean, it was definitely a culture shock the first time I worked on a farm. Um, I mean, I thought it was like the worst smell ever. The others were like, oh, it's a farm, this is so great. And so, I mean, pigs, the one big problem, I think, in science in general is that a lot of the science and work we do in mice, it's really unclear how that translates to humans. Mm -hmm. We have created so many therapies or drugs or solutions to different disorders and diseases. And you find yourself wondering, like, why is that? Why have we not cured Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or whatever it is? And, you know, the translation from a mouse to a human is so, so big. So with pigs there's there's a dual role one is you know studying them in agriculture and and um from like a a animal production standpoint in in terms of making pork and they're very interested in how fiber works can that create a healthier more lean pig but also from what we would call the biomedical side which is can we use pigs as a model for humans Um, I didn't really understand what that term meant, an animal model, like what is a model, but basically as something, you know, could you translate your findings from pigs to humans and rodents when they're born are, um, really immature. So they cannot even urinate on their own without urogenital stimulation from, from the mom. So it's really important for mom to like lick and groom her pups and, you know, humans, we can do that. So, there's this idea of a prenatal or postnatal developer and um, rodents are just so underdeveloped at birth that they're not the greatest model of infant development. Whereas pigs, pigs are, are a little more developed at birth than humans are, right? I mean, they're born and they're like up and running around. And obviously it takes a long time for kids to, to run. I have a, a two and a half year old now um, who can't do anything other than run i'm not, not sure he can walk <laughs> he can but he just like only wants That's to run <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so
1: the the pig was actually a really good um animal model or system to be able to study how some of these things work they have more similar brains to humans their guts are more similar just on, on almost every single level they're closer to humans and uh, i remember the first project i did we were looking at this uh, combination of fibers called polydextrose and galacto oligosaccharide, these uh, prebiotics that are put in infant formula. And I thought, hey, aren't those things that you like take when you need to poop, like you in the laxative vial? Who, who would care about fibers in the brain? And this is in, in 2016, I think. And the gut brain axis was becoming a big thing, but it's way bigger now than it even was then. And there were, you know, a few publications to reference on how maybe there's this link between what's going on in your gut and your brain. And so we, we did a study and I had my part of the study. Well, I, I, I led it as a graduate student, but I looked at memory in pigs. And so you can, you can learn about how pigs develop memory or learn by the way they interact with toys. So you, actually all mammals do this thing where we we look at things that are new and interesting and that are novel. And so you can let a pig play with two toys that are identical and then take it back to its cage, bring them back and have the old toy and a new toy. And if they spend more time with the new toy, it's usually an indication that it remembers it's played with the other one. And so you can, you know, kind of play around with maybe I'll put them back and a an hour later, a day later, a week later, show them the toys again and see if they play with the new ones more than the old ones, meaning they have some memory of it. And so anyways, the, the pigs that got these fibers would explore more. They would play with that newer toy. They had a better memory, essentially, than the, than the pigs who didn't get that that combination of those two prebiotics. And, uh, it was like the cleanest study ever. I've never, I'd never reproduced something that was so easy to write and reproduce where like every variable went in the right direction. It was easy to, <laughs> to describe. And then future ones are like, well, I don't know why this group improved and this one didn't. And how to explain that, <laughs> you know, it's just whatever it's research is messy.
0: Indeed. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's, uh, you know that connection was just—it felt so clear that um, if you want to look at what can we do to infants to help them develop, there's all these things in human milk that isn't in formula. Manufacturers want to add those components into formula to to help make infants healthier. You know, obviously, so that they can make more health claims on their uh, marketing too. But that it would make a good idea to do that in pigs and and not rodents and so I, I finished, I did my PhD, took around five years between 2014 and 2019, and um, I'm, I'm, I might be getting, I'm coming back to your original question, which is the the path to consulting, and so, okay, I'm getting towards the end of graduate school, what do I want to do next, and amazingly, I was in the same emotional and mental state as i was with high school and undergraduate which is like i don't really know what else to do other than what i've been doing Mm -hmm. um but i did know a couple things which is i i didn't really want to work for someone else as interesting as i found some of the industry work i was like i can't work on just formula for my whole life or just you know xyz food product and i and i my advisor was make doing so well and i i convinced him that we should start a business together and like run a lab. So there's a lot of there's a lot of research that companies want to do that are kind of boring. That from an academic perspective, they might be they might be about like uh, food safety, um, in the sense that you're not measure, you're not using the latest greatest cool cutting edge techniques. You, you would call them feed them and weigh them trials. Like you just need to feed the animals, weigh them. Do they grow weird? Do they grow okay? you're not getting really cool dissertations out of doing that. And I don't mean that as a knock for anyone who's done that, but um, I thought, hey, well, maybe there could be a business to do a lot of these more kind of like routine, basic studies, like toxicology type studies. And, you know, it fits well for academics to do the more cool cutting edge new techniques, real interesting scientific questions. And it turns out that uh, we pivoted several times because well, how does the business work? Why wouldn't my advisor just take every single project that came his way? And I think he taught me well, but I found myself just coming back to being like, well, I mean, I need you to do this and it would be your lab. So there, there wasn't as much uh, commercial need, I think, for more labs that could raise pigs and do these types of studies. Uh, and then COVID hit like a year into it. So that was that was a big thing. But what we did get questions a lot about, in earlier consulting, hey, we're interested in, um, are beans healthy and how so? Like we worked with Bush Beans and they wanted to better understand the relationship between beans and fiber and and your gut. And I I remember having $80 going to a conference, like I had no money and I had no prospects, sitting at a table trying to pretend I'm a (laughs) co-founder, I'm a CEO, president, I have no money. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and I was like, I need, this is like feast or famine. I need to like get a job. Uh, and I met someone who had, you know, worked on a similar fiber that I had. And and then I, I met a representative from Beachbody who I barely finished saying what I do. I was like, hey, I can help do statistical analysis and writing. And they were like, here's my card. I need help. Um, And so that led me down a path where I got to where we do now, which is we we started out doing a lot of statistical analysis, and manuscript writing and literature review. And then when COVID hit, people stopped doing new research. They had, they started shifting their focus to maybe writing things, writing up reports of studies they had done or literature review. Is, is it legit that Jennifer Aniston is selling collagen and saying it's good for your skin? Um, you know, we, we had someone ask us like, what are the drivers of of optimal skin health? So we looked at collagen, which I also thought was like, yeah, whatever. This is there's there's no way it's not going to be that good. Ah, turns out there was actually more credibility to it than I thought, and so and so now what we do is we do a lot of systematic review. You know that itself is not novel. There's tons of academic groups that do it. Um, but the where we help other organizations is to help them compile safety data if they're trying to demonstrate that a, a food is safe and it needs. Um, approval, or they have to submit it through the uh, generally recognized as safe program in the U.S., or they have to submit a novel food application in Europe. And then if someone wants to make a claim, and for those not familiar with what claims are, think of like Cheerios, where it says, you know, it's it's heart healthy, and uh, it can lower your cholesterol. There's, there's more regulatory speak around it than just that phrase. But, you know, those things have to be substantiated. And so we do a lot of what's called claim substantiation now. And we work primarily with Um, consumer packaged goods companies. So those would be those selling a food and those would be like companies that most people are familiar with. They have household recognition names. Think General Mills, PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, Nestle, others. They get their ingredients from (laughs) ingredient suppliers or chemical companies. Most people probably have not heard of many of these these groups. They might've heard of really big ones like Cargill or DuPont before they merged with um, IFF. And ingredient suppliers have a really big burden to demonstrate that what they're selling, whether that's a fiber, a probiotic, a protein, that will one, it's safe, and two, that it works, and that if you add it to some food, it's gonna do what you think it is. Um, or or if someone wants to um, sell a food that's going to help with gut digestion, you need some science behind that. And so ingredient, ingredient suppliers invest a lot in that. And then the third uh, group of organizations we work with are commodity groups. So think of, like, eggs, avocados, beef. You know, when consumers buy, um, you know, eggs, a portion of that goes to the American Egg Board. And then they have the Egg Nutrition Center. And these commodity boards are usually designed to promote research and communication on their foods. So I never... um, intentionally landed myself in this space. I mean, pretty much every time I intentionally said, I'm going to do something, it didn't work out. So I had to figure that out and pivot to do something else. So I I think I've, um, I think everyone actually had, does have to do that, but, you know, part of it was just kind of being opportunistic. And luckily, you know, I, I knew a lot of scientists who were so I mean, I admired this and was jealous of it in some ways. They were so bent on, like, so passionate about, about certain subjects. Like in, in neuroscience, I thought sleep was so fascinating. And I would go to these conferences, and it turned out I, I could – I was falling asleep at the abstracts and talks about it. it I <laughs> thought it was cool, and it became the most boring thing. I, I was like, somehow these scientists made a way to make this the most boring topic, but it seemed really cool. <laughs> and And I learned about myself that I was not driven by interests – by a, by a passion for a certain interest, um, I was more driven by like is the thing that I'm doing interesting? Are the people I'm around good to work with? Like I could, I could kind of be a chameleon in some ways. I can get passionate about a lot of things. I didn't, you know, I wasn't like I am five years old and always wanted to do this thing. I've just never resonated with with that at all. So that that's my really long-winded way to say like how you know we got from. Uh, high school, not knowing what I wanted to do, and then now this this uh, consulting company. So,
0: so it sounds like to me that you're you're using
1: a very deliberate process, the one
0: described on your on your company's website, to get to these health claims to look at data evaluation and sustainability. Um, so, I'm just kind of curious. First of all, how does that process work? So, I think many of our guests might be familiar with the literature review where you're looking through the scientific publications to see what you can find you know does collagen really work or not in in regard to to you know prevention of wrinkles but could you walk us through that and especially one of the areas that i don't think we've touched on yet is this area of sustainability so how Mm -hmm. do you deliberately walk through this in a way that's unique and allows you to look at these various aspects, health claims, data evaluation, and sustainability.
1: Yeah. So so this was around probably 2021, 2022. So when I started this company out, it was in 2018. I was finishing my last year of PhD. So I founded it in August 2018, but I didn't start really leading it until May of 2019. But I essentially did everything for the first few years. But I started to bring on other like graduate students or postdocs for part-time help. And um, I'm sure professors or just anyone who leads or manages a team resonates with this. I had no clue how hard it is to, like, replicate yourself or to um, do quality control on something other people are doing. So, like, if I write a literature review and it's just me, I don't really need a protocol. Like, it's in my head. If you ask me anything, I can tell you. And mm-hmm. I started having other people help me with this. And that the, that what are the drivers of skin health was like a pivotal moment for us because we looked at like 10 different nutrients. I had two people helping me with this and we were writing a report for a client and one person would write things like in a double blind RCT, there were a hundred subjects and they measured XYZ and found this. And another person would say, researchers here found feeding this does a good thing. And I needed more consistency. Like, okay, if we're gonna say the number of participants here, we should probably do that throughout the document. And if we're gonna say it's this type of trial design, well, we should probably do that throughout everything too. Um, So I was just you know, making mistakes into failing into what other professors have already known about like, maybe you should do a systematic review instead. And so I was attracted to the idea of doing a systematic review because well, I don't know. it seems obvious, but also not. I mean when you're in a when you're in undergraduate or graduate, you are taught of the importance of adhering to protocols for making the simplest of solutions and buffers. But then when you do a literature review, there's somehow protocol and procedure goes out the window. you know, ah uh, I have written perspectives and narrative reviews, but I also sometimes speak about them almost in like a denigrating manner in that a, a narrative review is it's like a opinion with a lot of citations behind it how do you know that um that's all the literature that was there and that you're even interpreting it the right way so i was attracted to a systematic review because you could build a procedure around it these are the search terms we're going to use these are the types of studies we're going to include they have to meet xyz criteria and then you could develop that and there's variability around that too, but you could hand that to other people and say, as long as you follow X, Y, Z, we should get to a very similar place. And I mean, you still don't. We do something called dual review and dual data extraction where you have two people do the whole review and then you merge their answers and they're going to be conflicts. You said there were a hundred subjects. Well, I wrote that there were 90 because there were only 90 who finished the trial. And so then after two people have independently read all the studies, extracted all this data you then, you know, as a group say, okay, here's what we think the answer for this should be. One, it is kind of overkill. Like I didn't actually really need to do things systematically if um, a company wanted to just get some quick information because they're not always looking to publish. They might just want to know quickly like, oh, hey, this plant-based trend thing is happening fast. Like, can you just do a quick Google for this thing? But I just always felt weird just quickly Googling something. I mean, maybe I should have just taken the money and done it. But I, I liked the idea of having like a protocol in place. It was repeatable. And then we started adding data visualization on top of it. And so my biggest frustration with scientific research is that it's, it's published in, on static pages. And someone says, hey, there's five trials. And you it's like, I just want to click on those five and learn more about them. And maybe pivot around like, well, here's what the results were in men versus women, or in this country or this country. So we started using more data visualization techniques using um, Tableau to be able to, you know, make tables that are interactive. So mm-hmm. we could publish a paper, but then put something on our website where, you know, it's it's like graphs that update in real time. If you want to look at a different, um, what's a good example? We looked at studies on beef and cognition so does beef improve Mm -hmm. cognition and we learned that some studies are just about red meat they don't really talk about beef so we could make a table that said here's how many studies were on red meat versus beef and here's the methods or the people they studied um but if you wanted to just filter down to just red meat real quick or something like that you can't do that on just like a pdf document you need something interactive and visual to do that and that, that got us really interested in the in the data visualization um aspect and so that's kind of how we got um to doing something in a in a more repeatable manner does does that tableau uh, dynamic interface does that exist
0: just say on the website of your your customer or are um are you also looking at public facing public facing databases as well so i'm just kind of curious because it sounds fascinating i've i've just as my, as you indicated, I, I've been frustrated with these sort of static papers, when you know that the research continues progressing, and it would be right. great to see this change in real time. So it sounds like that's exactly what you've accomplished. So are, is is this just for customers, or or do you also publish these kind of things um, mm-hmm. publicly?
1: Yeah, we do a mix. I mean, I always like it when I can get clients to publish it Mm -hmm. because you know if we just do it and no one sees it but them i'm like well i don't even have proof i ever even did that in the first place (laughs) uh you know (laughs) i'm like i'm happy for the work but i want to you know i want to promote myself too um it's a mix so we have a couple on our website um with one is on that we did a scoping review on beef and cognition uh you know does beef improve cognition and to fast forward on that, the the literature was so mixed that we didn't even bother trying to make a conclusion. It was like, there's so many different methods. This has been studied. It would be really premature to, to say yes or no to this. Um, we need more studies on it. And so we made a visualization out of that. That's public. That's on our website. And then we did another one. Um, we pulled the FDA grass notice inventory. So this is a... a you know, it's a Excel CSV of like a thousand substances that have been submitted through this. And this is, for those that aren't familiar with it, when a um you companies do not necessarily have to um, submit to the FDA that they're uh, you know going to have a a food added that their food additive is safe, but they can voluntarily submit to the FDA, and the FDA will review it and say we agree or don't agree. And so this is a database of a thousand substances that companies have submitted saying, hey, we provided safety data that you can put it in X, Y, Z food for X, Y, Z uses. It could be like enzymes for some um, for the manufacturing process. It could be fibers for, you know, as a nutritional additive. Um, And because we we were doing some regulatory work and. I just thought to myself, like, I just want a better understanding of the trend. So we made that one public as well. And uh, I just, I don't know, I envision a future. I would love it if, like, you could update your publications over time, you know? Like, if someone does a review, I mean, that could be updated yearly um, or every other year or something. If it was more interactive or visual, like, you could just have, like, the same publication, but it's just, like, here's the 2023, four, five version. Uh, That's a bit of a pipe dream, though but you know, it was, I think it's the, a great dream. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I know. It's a, it's a great dream. <laughs> Stephen, I think that is
0: a great way to wrap it up. This has been amazing. And I think we've really covered a lot of, of territory. And I, um, I think there's going to be a lot of benefit, um, to, to students and to others from, uh, from, from the interview. So thank you so much for taking the time yeah. to be with us.
1: Thank you for having me. And, uh, uh, I'm hesitant to say this, but I doubt bots are looking through transcripts, and I get so much spam already. If anyone wants to reach out to me, you know, it's Steven at Traversescience.com, um, spelled just like the normal words Traverse and Science, Steven with a P-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N. Um Yeah, so feel free to reach out to me or find me on LinkedIn and have one of those informational interviews or chats. Happy to, you know, really chat with anyone. If you'd like to find out more about our podcast, Wolfing Down Food Science, please check us out at NCSU's Food Bioprocessing and Nutrition Science website, where you can find our show notes, reference links, and more. You can find out more about NC State, our department, and FS201, the amazing course that has brought us all together, on our website as well. Please don't forget to subscribe to Wolfing Down Food Science, wherever you stream your podcasts like Spotify and iTunes. Thanks for tuning in to Wolfing Down Food Science. See you next time.